0: Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho, copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon.
1: And God's people said, Let us worship the triune God the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed. and he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple so I looked and behold the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell on my face lift up your hearts we lift them up to the Lord. unto you O Lord do we lift up our voice unto you O Lord do we lift up our voice our eyes our hearts our hands all that we are For you alone are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. You have triumphed gloriously over sin, death, and the devil, and you are our salvation. Who is like you, O Lord, mighty God, our man of war? You have bound the strong man and plundered his house and brought us out into light and life and liberty. You have taken our sins away as far as the east is from the west. Who is like you, O Lord? You have triumphed gloriously, and we are saved. Sing unto the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and on earth and in the sea cries out, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And so we worship you now in Jesus' name, who lived and died and now lives again and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. And amen. amen. Today is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the annual celebration of what we mark every Sunday, every Lord's Day, and if we truly know Jesus, it is a reality that is ours every single day of the year. It's good to remember the resurrection and to mark it, but we really must be careful not to mistake respectable religious forms for true evangelical Easter joy. It's still respectable to go to church on Easter Sunday. It's respectable to have big dinners, to buy new dresses, to give gifts, to hunt for Easter eggs, a Bible verse on a Hallmark card, or invite a friend to church, and that's still considered largely respectable. But that is not necessarily the same thing as knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection is to know the joy of forgiveness, to know the joy of fellowship with God and those around you, to know the joy of confessing sins and making things right as quickly as possible, to know the joy of obedience, the joy of suffering reproach and slander and hatred for loyalty to Christ. And so my question for you this morning is, do you have that joy? Do not say, well, I'm in church, aren't I? Yes, very good, you are in church, but are you in Christ? Another way to ask the same question is, are you rich in Christ? Knowing Christ means that you have come into unspeakable wealth. And now you find that you have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control sloshing out of you at every turn. And the more you confess your sins and forgive and obey, the more you have So as you worship today, do not look at the songs, at the people, at the sermon, or at the table. You will not find our joy in any of these things in themselves. They are all signs pointing to our joy, pointing to the one who is our joy. They are windows for you to look through. But if you came here to do something respectable on Easter, I'm afraid you've come to the wrong place. We are not here to do respectable religious things. We are here because a man named Jesus rose from the dead and we have met him. He is alive and he is here with us by his spirit. He has forgiven us all our sins. And so we are here to praise him with all that we are. Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. Father, we confess that we have sometimes gone through the motions of prayer and Bible reading and going to church, but our hearts have been cold toward you because we have been hiding from you in our hearts, because we have unconfessed sin. But we have lied and called it being mature, or we have lied and said that we are just not very emotional, or we have lied and said that we are just too busy to bother with that sort of thing. But Father, we confess that you see it all. You know when we draw near to you with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. And we confess that it really is awful and evil and wicked. We confess the sin of pride that would rather look respectable than actually be holy, that would rather look religious than actually be joyful and have your peace. Father, we confess that this is a terrible bargain, and we are refusing your goodness because we are too proud to just humble ourselves before you. So we ask you to forgive us for all of this, and we surrender to you now, completely. Anything we've been trying to hide from you, we lay before you. Anything we've been trying to avoid with you, we turn it over to you now. We are done pretending that everything's fine, and we ask you to make us right with you. And we agree with you now, as we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in the good name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Ezekiel 36 has these wonderful words, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God." God fulfilled this promise when he sent his own perfect and beloved son to stand in your place on the cross and when he raised him from the dead. God has kept his promises, and therefore I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to
0: God. The text is from the Gospel of John, chapter 18 and also chapter 21. These are the words of God and the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals for it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself and then in chapter 21 and the other disciples came in a little ship for they were not far from land but as it were 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes as soon as soon then as they were come to land they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. I pray that our hearts would be opened before you, that your spirit would take these words and apply it to us. I pray you do this because we ask for it in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. I want to talk to you today. I want to speak to you today about two distinct coal fires that uh, John places in his gospel, just a short space, Apart, and I want to talk to you about those things that occur around those two coal fires. But first, we should note that the presence of the Lord Jesus alive, just as he had said that he would come back to life, that his presence transforms everything we can see this very clearly in the fall and restoration of the apostle peter after the resurrection remember that the central thing that is transformed by the presence of the resurrected jesus is the sinner the person who has uh messed up. The person who has done a terrible job, the person who who is not worthy to receive anything good from God, that's the central object of God's intent to transform. So other things are transformed as well, but the but the transformation of the sinner, the transformation of sinners, the transformation of a sinful race, that's the bullseye. That's the thing that God's aiming at centrally and other things are transformed uh, along with it. And we see this in the transformation of the apostle Peter. The account of Christ's care for Peter is given to us so that we might understand more about his care for us. So we should see ourselves, we should learn to see ourselves in Peter. We see Christ's care for Peter in his warning to Peter beforehand, and we see it when Peter didn't understand the warning. He tried to heed it, but he didn't understand what he was trying to heed. And so he denies the Lord just as the Lord said that he would do it. And the Lord graciously restores him. The Lord forgives him and then restores him to the apostleship. Uh, Peter could have been exiled from the apostles he could have said that's it you're forgiven but you can't hold this office peter is not only forgiven but he is restored to his office as an apostle he doesn't deserve to be forgiven that's what forgiveness is getting what you getting a gracious uh, gift that you don't deserve and he's also given something else that he doesn't deserve and that is a restoration to the apostleship so we see the lord's care for peter and when we co- when we come to really understand the lord's care for peter we should come to understand more of his care for us. So let's consider these, uh, these two coal fire passages. These two verses, chapter 18 and chapter 21, these, these, uh, passages are just a few pages apart. And if you were operating with a a scroll in the first century, you would just have to scroll down a little bit. You'd, go from one coal fire and then you'd find yourself reading about another one. And the, and the word in the Greek for the coal fire is identical in both places on Thrakion. Uh So anthracite coal comes from the Greek word for coal here. The apostle John is a very careful writer and I don't believe that this was an accident. I don't believe that uh, this is something that he is just thrown in there. I don't think it's an accident at all. I believe that we are being invited to compare and contrast the two fires as occupying the center of two quite different settings. We have setting one and setting two. And we organize, we, we, look, we should look carefully at what happens around those two coal fires the first fire was built by the enemies of Christ the enemies of Christ this was a, a coal fire at the um, at the high priest's house the first fire was built by the enemies of Christ 1818 and the second was built by Jesus himself 21:9. this is a contrast so the enemies of Christ and Christ himself Peter, this this next thing is a parallel. Peter was present in both settings. Peter was at both fires. Peter was at both fires. And he was present, he was there at both fires because of something that had been said by the apostle John. We see that in 1816 and 217. In the first, John got him into the place where Christ was being tried. And in the second, it was John who pointed out that the man on the shore was the Lord. So we don't know. um, We know that John was together with Peter, a fisherman. Uh, We don't know how and why John had some connection at the high priest's house. It could be uh, that John's family was more important in Israel than we uh, might assume. In other words, he had connections. They went to, uh, John's a fisherman up in Galilee, but he goes down to Jerusalem and he's got connections there. And John is able to get Peter, into the high priest's house it could be a more pedestrian reason in other words um, uh, the high priest the high priest household might have been um, someone that john sold fish to so they were fishermen and as they sold fish he and he knew someone that he could he could pull some strings and he could get them into the house we don't know why but john says something and john and peter make it in to the house where jesus is being tried in the second, it's John who points out that it's the Lord. So they're about a, they're about a football field away from the shore. It's about a about hundred yards. And when Jesus says to pull, um, throw down the net and pull in a, pull in a haul, that's sort of a, a signature move that Jesus would make. He did it earlier in the gospels. He did the same thing earlier. And John, with a flash of recognition said, uh, that's a Jesus thing, right? that's, that's totally Jesus. And Peter goes and jumps overboard and swims to shore, impulsive Peter, swims to shore. And in both cases, Peter is with Jesus at a coal fire because of something John says. Now, uh, I said with Jesus, remember also that when Pete, with Peter's final denial, with Peter's third denial, uh, it says, when the, when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at him. So Jesus um, is just, within, G- Jesus is close enough to Peter to make eye contact and say, see, I, I, I told you. Now, we should, I, I want to uh, remind you that Peter did not understand what Jesus was talking about, but Peter was not what you would call a physical coward. He was, not, he was not a physical coward. So when the when the guards showed up to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus had earlier asked, you guys got any swords? You're gonna need swords. And they produced two on the spot. Well, one of them was Peter's and Peter attacks, Malch- uh, attacks one of the uh, uh, group that came to arrest Jesus, a servant named Malchus, and he strikes off his ear. Jesus heals the ear. But Peter is clearly... Um, willing to fight. Peter's clearly willing to fight. And Peter, after Jesus is arrested, Peter is trying to be true to his word. He said, he had said earlier, even though, even if everyone denies you, I'm not going to deny you. And so he, he goes with John and he, he does this sort of undercover, undercover secret agent thing. He goes into the high priest's house. See, see, I'm keeping my word. See, I'm doing what I said I was going to do. See, I'm not going to deny you. But he doesn't understand What is going down? He doesn't understand what God's purpose and plan is. And so at the end, when all of a sudden, when the scales come off his eyes, he he realizes, oh, I denied the Lord in exactly the way Jesus said that I would do because he didn't get it. But his problem wasn't physical cowardice. His problem wasn't physical cowardice. It was his uh, spiritual obtuseness. He thought he, he thought he was wiser than Jesus. So Jesus was present at both coal fires. Jesus was present in both of them. In the first, he was on trial for his life. We see that in John 18, 17. And in the second, he had conquered death, 21, 1. So Jesus has not yet been executed at the first coal fire. He has been executed, been three days in the tomb, and he rose from the dead at the second coal fire. In the first setting, Peter denied the Lord three times. Peter denied the Lord three times at the first coal fire, just as Jesus had predicted, 1817, 1825, and 1826, and Peter fell into sin. In the second, he affirmed his love for the Lord three times and was reinstated. So remember that famous exchange, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know, so it's it's interesting that the Lord has appeared to Peter at least a couple times before this. All right, this is, the third, this, this is the third time, and Peter's reinstated the third time. He's not reinstated the first time. He's not reinstated the second time. And then on this third appearance, Jesus asks him three, three times. So it's one, two, three, and then th- one, two, three within the third. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And uh, scholars are divided about this, about the, you may have heard about the verbs being used. Peter, do you, do you me? P- Lord, you know I have warm affection for you. You know I love you, have warm phileo love for you. Peter, do you agapow? you know I do. And then Jesus reduces it the third time. Peter, do you have warm affection for me? And Peter says, y- you know that I do. And then Jesus reinstates him. All right, so Jesus reinstates him. It's grace and mercy. So in the second time, the, around the second coal fire, he affirms his love for the Lord three times and he's reinstated. Uh, Peter likes to do, thing in, uh, do things in threes. Later on in the book of Acts, the a sheet is uh, in his vision of the unclean animals uh, about preaching to, uh, preaching to Gentiles. He has the vision three times and he has, you know, uh, no, I'm not gonna do that. No, I'm not gonna do that. So in the first, Peter received something from wicked men. It says it was cold and Peter was there at the fire, warming himself at the fire. He was receiving something from wicked men he ought not to have been receiving. And in the second, he received something from the Lord. He received food, he received breakfast, and he received forgiveness and reinstatement. In the first, in the first instance, Peter does not compare favorably with the disciple that Jesus loved. Now John wrote this gospel and and the disciple that Jesus loved is John's oblique way of talking about himself in the third person, sort of semi uh, third person. Peter does not compare favorably with John uh, in this account. John was more influential at court. John was the one able to get him in. John didn't deny the Lord and John didn't run away. So if there was one disciple out of, we, we, See in scripture, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The one disciple who didn't scatter, the one disciple who did it right all the way through, the one disciple who did nothing wrong was John. And we we see that Jesus had picked his 12 uh, disciples out of a larger crowd. He had a group of 70 followers at least. There was a a greater multitude than that, 70, but 12 out of the 70. And then there were three uh, out of the 12, uh, Peter, James, and John, who were closer to Jesus. And then out of the three, John was the Lord's best friend. John was the Lord, uh, John was the disciple that Jesus loved. So Peter, so so John uh, stands tall and Peter is very aware of the fact that John stood tall. So in the second, uh, at the second coal fire, Peter has all comparisons put to rest. John 21, 21 and 22. Uh, The Lord reinstates Peter and then Peter says, so what about John? What are we going to do with, what are we going to do about the John problem? (laughs) And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you? And so in the restoration of Peter, we have all odious envy, all odious striving put to death. It's all resolved. And this is, these things happen around the two coal fires, right? that's, that's what's happening. And these two coal fires are just a, a few verses apart and it's not accidental. It's not accidental that we have the same kind of fire and it's not accidental that all these Uh, Similar things parallels and contrasts are happening around those coal fires. So There's another uh, feature of this account in John 21 that I want to talk a little bit about And it's going to look to you for a moment as though I'm changing the subject or as though I'm changing the subject drastically, but I'm not changing the subject at all one of the things that novelists do is that they describe the details of a scene and they, and they do this in order to paint word pictures th- to make it strike the reader as being realistic. And, and so it's not necessary, uh, well, a good novelist is, going, is not just gonna take a grab bag of things and dump it into a scene, but there'll be a number of things that have meaning and they come back around later. But the, a novelist wants to paint a picture for you to make it seem like you are there. BUT THE GOSPELS, ALTHOUGH TRUE ACCOUNTS, ARE NOT NOVELS. The fact that they're not novels, however, does not mean that there is no artistry or there's no literary talent that goes into uh, assembling them. So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are synoptic gospels. And then John's gospel um, is following certain patterns. There are certain things that John is clearly doing on purpose, and it's not necessarily the sort of thing we would do in a novel. So we have to recognize the gospels are purposive, but they're not novels. We don't see the gospel writers tossing in random details that have no particular meaning other than to make it seem real. So keep that in mind in what follows. So uh, here's an example uh, in the famous passage earlier in John where the woman caught in adultery um, is brought to Jesus and the law requires that we stone her. Um, So what Jesus, what are you gonna do with that? well jesus and a lot of people think that jesus is saying oh that was old testament let's be nice now and let's just let the woman go free now because it's the new testament Um, but that's not what's going on at all jesus uh, so think about this for a minute they brought this woman they caught they said they caught her in the very act of adultery all by herself (laughs) all by herself so O oh, ye who catch people in the act of adultery Where's the guy? The, what, is the, what does the Old Testament law require? It requires the penalty the, uh, the same penalty, no double standard The same penalty is applied to the man And the woman And then in Uh, In the Old Testament if a a husband is jealous and if he's afraid his wife is cheating on him He brings her to the tabernacle the priest writes the charge against her He writes down the charge a suspicion of adultery and then they take the charge and they rinse it into some water And they take dust from the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water and the woman drinks it And if uh, if her thigh swells up, then she's guilty This is a trial trial by ordeal, but you notice that in scriptural trial by ordeal. It's not like the medieval medieval, uh, the caricature of the medieval trial where if she sinks, she's innocent and if she floats, she's a witch. Um, It's not that kind of trial by ordeal. In this case, in a biblical trial by ordeal, the miracle has to happen. The strange thing has to happen in order to convict, right? So, and the thing that's interesting is if she is innocent if nothing happens and she's cleared then the husband was also put on trial the husband has has to have skin in the game because if he falsely accuses her then it says he can't put her away for the rest of his life he he can't put her away now what does jesus do when the woman is caught in adultery caught in adultery and brought to him he stoops down this is in the temple he stoops down and he doodles in the dust of the floor of the temple he writes in the dust of the floor of the temple what's he doing He's writing out the charge. He's he's writing out the charge. And then he says the famous line, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And I don't think he's saying if any of you have sinned in any respect in any part of your life, you can't have anything to do with this. He's saying if any of you are hypocrites, if any of you are judging this woman by a double standard, accusing her of things you yourself have done. Jesus writes out the charge and he puts them on trial and he looks at them and it says they all went away, starting with the oldest, the oldest knew what Jesus was saying and the oldest were, they, they knew that he busted them on a charge of hypocrisy. Jesus throws the case out. He's not, and he's throwing it out because they're not following the law. They're not, they're not obeying the law. They're pretending to be zealous for the law. The point is that you don't see John record that Jesus is doodling in the, flo- in the dust on the floor of the temple. That's not a random detail to make it seem realistic. It's part of the narrative. It, it helps us understand the full narrative. We're gonna have something similar happen here, as the disciples approached the shore, they were dragging a net filled with fish, which Jesus had essentially caught for them from a hundred yards away. Jesus says, "From a hundred yards, he yells the length of a football field, lower your net on the right side that 's where the fish can 't you see." <laughs> Can't you lower you lower than nets on the right side So they haul the fish in and they cooked some of these fish on this same coal fire Now what I'm about to what I want to lay out for you is not a mystical or a spooky reading of the text This is a literary reading of the text. The issues are placement foreshadowing parallelism literary conventions and so on so Jesus calls out to the disciples from about 100 yards away. He told them to put their nets down over the right side of the boat, which they did. When they'd done so, the result is a huge haul of fish. This was a way that Jesus had of identifying himself. All right, this is, he's done this for them before, and he's identifying himself. When he first called them to ministry, he had called them away from their nets, Matthew 4, 18 through 22, so that they could become fishers of men. I want you to remember that phrase, fishers of men. That's central to all of this. And when Jesus had done a similar miracle like this one before, he, uh, telling Peter where the fish were, the response that Peter had when he hauled that haul in and it started to sink the boat, what was Peter's response then? He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The, the, the earlier haul of fish had made Peter aware of his what? Of his sin. Peter was aware of his sin because of this huge haul of fish. So Jesus, knowing that Peter needs to be made aware of his sin, um, gives him another huge haul of fish. So Peter was aware of, of his own sinfulness, Luke 5, 8. Now the scene in John has a, uh, therefore has a return of both elements. Jesus is dealing wonderfully with Peter's sin and fall, and Jesus also recommissions him to the ministry as a fisher of men. So he's doing two things. He's dealing with Peter's sin, and he's recommissioning him. He tells him three times to feed the sheep. He tells them that in 2115, and then again in 16 and 17. He tells him three times, feed the sheep. Now, we should, we should have no trouble seeing the fish as emblematic of the coming haul at Pentecost. When uh, we, we have trouble in the Northwest with this, well, I will make you fishers of men. Uh, he's not talking about trout fishing in the mountains with lures, catching trout one at a time. He's talking, he's talking about nets. He's talking about a wholesale operation. He's talking about the kind of thing that some of you go up in Alaska to do, right? He's talking about bringing in fish, tons of fish. That's what happened at Pentecost, right? That, it's that kind of uh, fishing, So the nations were to be brought into the boat. The nations were to be hauled into the boat. And Jesus indeed made his disciples fishers of men, and he makes Peter again for the second time a fisher of men. In this case, Peter had jumped out of the boat and the others brought the fish in, but Peter is soon to rejoin them in the work. But what is it? What is it? You might say, remember what I said, Jesus isn't doodling in the dust on the temple floor for no particular reason, or John... uh, didn't just record that for no particular reason. What is it with the specific number of fish? Is there anything to that? Or is it just a little realistic detail thrown in? And this is a good place to illustrate the difference between a careful literary reading versus a mystical reading. This number, 153 fish, has been the occasion of a goodly amount of ingenuity that has been spent Some of it uh, has been fanciful, some of it has been sober, and some of it has been pretty pedestrian. So bear with me for a moment. Some of you are not math types. This is the Mego, uh, you know what Mego is. My eyes glaze over. (laughs) But if you do that, you're gonna be sorry because there's something really cool here. The pedestrian reading is that 153 is mentioned because that's how many fish there were, darn it. (laughs) Why did John record there were 153? Because it wasn't 152, it wasn't 178. So why did God want faithful followers of Jesus Christ to the end of the world to know that there are 153 fish there? I think it's a more than just adding something for realism. A fanciful reading, here's an example of fanciful reading, but there's an element of truth even in this fanciful reading, is if you add the 10 of the 10 commandments to the seven of the sevenfold spirit, as Augustine uh, argued that we should do, you get 17. And 153 is the triangular of 17. So you might say, what is the triangular? the word triangular means that if you add the numbers 17 and 16 and 15 and 14 13 down to the number one you take any number and then add you just add them all together descending from that initial number the sum that you get is the triangular of that number okay, so if you add 17 to 16 to 15 to 14 you get 153. So Augustine said clearly 10 commandments, sevenfold spirit, 17, 153. (laughs) That's where you think, doctor, you're cutting too deep. You're scratching the table. (laughs) So for another, here's another example to illustrate a triangular. The triangular of three is three plus two plus one or six. So you just take the number and count down from there, add them all together and that's the triangular. The problem here is that you can also get 153 from 17 Magazine. And that doesn't mean that John is talking about the challenges of adolescence. (laughs) This is the kind of thing, if you're just pulling things out of the air, it's the kind of thing that John Calvin called childish trifling. It's nothing more than free association. You don't have any grounds in the text. So uh, when, when something is proven to you from the scriptures, it's something that compels belief once you're required to accept it when someone argues something scriptural from the text if it compels belief Then it's shown it's proven if you say well I don't know if you're free to say I don't know at the end uh, like I said if I if I were to say that the tongues of uh, Tongues of fire at Pentecost were green and you say well, how do you how do you get that and then I reply? Well, it doesn't say they weren't <laughs> Okay, well, that's not a proof all right, because you're free to reject that and walk away. You're free to reject that and walk away. When someone says, add the Ten Commandments to the sevenfold spirit, you get 17, and that, get, that gets you 153, and that's why there is that many fish. You, you clearly see that this is a reach, but there are aspects of this that are not a reach at all. 666, that famous number from Revelation, is the triangular of 36, and 36 is six times six. The biblical writers did make some of their points with numbers. The the, the, the biblical writers are not extravagant with their numerology, but they do use it. They're, they're, not, they're not shy of using it, but they don't go overboard. And when you wanna make a point with it, I think you have to be able to prove the point. And John in particular does this. John in particular is, uh, John was brilliant, uh, I think I think, genius level brilliant and He he in particular was interested in this sort of thing Remember that John is also the author of the book of Revelation the fact that it's unusual to us Doesn't make it unusual or odd to them We already have solid grounds for understanding the fish as representing all the Gentile nations We have the fishers of men call that Jesus gave to Peter and Andrew and James and John. That's the fisher fishers of men. And the whole New Testament is on tiptoe ready to go out to the Gentile nations. So the fishers of men that began at Pentecost when people were there from all over the world um, is it's very clear that this fishing has new covenant fishing of Gentiles in mind. No one in the, uh, th- throughout, the old, throughout all scripture, the sea represents the Gentiles and the land represents the Jews. The sea, the Gentiles, and the land, the Jews. No one in the Old Testament is shown eating fish, but in the New Testament, fishing and the eating of fish comes to the front and center. It's a, it's a new feature. So you go through the Old Testament, uh, their fishing is referred to, but it doesn't have, it doesn't occupy the same place that it occupies in the New Testament. So on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, how many nations are listed there in Acts chapter two? Well, 17 actually, in Acts two, seven through 11. And we also have to remember the practice of encoding numbers in names, encoding numbers in names. The name for doing this is called gematria. And this was common in the ancient world. They could do this in a way that we cannot because they used the same symbols for letters as for numbers. We have, in our system, we have Roman letters and Arabic numerals. This was English's gift to all you (laughs) schoolchildren. Roman numerals are a pain in the neck, right? Uh, But, so we have Roman letters and Arabic numerals. They didn't do that in Greek and they didn't do that in Latin and they didn't do that in Hebrew. They used the letters, they did double duty f- with their letters and numbers. So uh, uh, Aleph in, um, in Hebrew would be one, uh, Bet would be two and just one, one, then you go one through nine and then the next set would be 10 through 90 and then uh, 100 through 400. So each letter had a numerical significance assigned, right? We have Roman letters, Arabic numerals, and in English, in, in English if our alphabet worked in this way, again, you school children, be thank God it doesn't, but if our alphabet worked this way, the numerical value of my name, Doug, would be four plus 60 plus 300 plus seven, or 371. Make of that what you will. <laughs> I see people scribbling. So so in a world, in the ancient world, in a world without crossword puzzles, in a world without the internet or no clever memes, there were no clever memes, no internet, there was no crossword puzzles. The world back then still contained that kind of person who who gravitates to that kind of thing. If you ever wondered, you know, back in 1350, there was some guy shoveling out, Stables and all of his gifts were in software coding <laughs> He was that kind of person he was born for software coding, and he periodically he would stop and lean on a shovel and say I have these strange yearnings <laughs> I've No idea why so there, there's always this kind of person there's the kind of person who realizes and someone I don't know who it was but someone did If you rearrange the letters of Britney Spears, (laughs) you get Presbyterians. (laughs) Who was that guy? (laughs) Somebody's staring at the word Presbyterians and says, hey, you know, if you just rearrange them, you can spell Britain or he was going the other way. There was that kind of guy back then there was that kind of guy. Make of that what you will. And so in this ancient world, This was a, gematria was a common parlor game. It was a common parlor game. In the ruins of Pompeii, for example, they found graffiti that said, I love her whose number is, and then it has her number. It Wasn't her phone number, it was, you know. (laughs) I love her whose number is. So the person just added up the number of her names and it's a little code, a little parlor game sort of thing. And this is how we surmise that the 666 in the book of Revelation refers to Nero Caesar. Okay, so if you take Nero Caesar uh, in Greek on one of the coins that he had struck, the form of it that existed on that coin, if you trans, uh, transfer it into Hebrew and add it up, it's 666. So Nero Caesar is 666. This is the number of a man. And, and self-consciously, uh, this is what John is doing. So, so what? Well, the prophet Ezekiel had promised the prophet Ezekiel had promised that the time of the new covenant would be a time of glorious fishing fishing in the waters of life that flowed out from the glorious temple. So the temple is restored. The temple in Ezekiel is the same as the new Jerusalem at the book of the, at the end of the book of Revelation. And water, living water flows over the threshold. And it's just a wet threshold initially. And then it gets your shoes wet, then your ankles, then up to your knees, and then you, you finally have to swim in it. And this, this living water, this great vision of the new covenant is promised and it goes down to two places, Eglaim and Ingedi. Ezekiel 47, verse 10. And it shall come to pass that the fishers, notice the fishers, shall stand upon it from en even unto En-Iglaim. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds as the fish of the great sea exceeding many. Now, this, these are the fish that are swimming in the living waters that are flowing out of the new covenant temple, right? Th- this is clearly an image of salvation. It's clearly an image of people being brought in. Now, the, the prefix n, there's two places, n Gedi and n-eglaim. The prefix n simply means spring, like we would have the Colorado Springs as the name of a, of a town. n means spring, so the name proper is what follows that prefix. So if you, if you look at the numerical value of geti in Hebrew, apart from the prefix, we find that it's 17. And the value of eglaim, also apart from the prefix, is 153. So the living water flows over Ezekiel's threshold and down to two places, down to the place named 17 and down to the place named 153. Ezekiel is talking about the salvation of the Gentiles under the figure of fish, and he uses these two numbers as he refers to it. John refers to the same thing, and it has the same meaning as the explicit meaning given to it by Jesus in Luke, fishing for men. Moreover, not only not only fishing for men, but fishing for men all over the world, fishing for Gentiles, fishing. And this is what you have poured out at Pentecost. This means that 153 is the symbolic number for the Gentile nations who will be brought into the kingdom of God. And Jesus saw to it that this was the number of fish they would find if they lowered their nets on the right side of the boat. And this is because Jesus, the risen Lord, is Lord of everything the lord of everything he has complete mastery and complete control he's not just lord in a, in a macro way, he's Lord down to the microcosm, even, even before his crucifixion and resurrection. Remember Jesus, uh, Peter was in a dispute about the temple tax and Jesus said, well, we don't know the tax, but go, uh, go catch a fish and take the coin out of the fish's mouth and give it to them for the temple tax. Jesus is aware of his surroundings and the risen Lord is aware from a hundred yards away. Not only are there fish on the right side of your boat, but there are 153 of them that the words of the prophet Ezekiel might be fulfilled. And so they haul them in and they pull them up on the beach and they count them and john records it for us So that we might know how it is and why it is that you a gentile are here worshiping jehovah god You are here worshiping yahweh today because you are numbered among the 153 But let's come back to the to the charcoal fire. Remember that peter is being restored Peter is being restored the antithesis is very clear here the charcoal fire built by the enemies of Christ is really not a good place to warm yourself that will end with snarling cursing devouring bitterness and tears the charcoal fire built by Christ is built in order to feed the disciples to feed the fishermen and then as Peter is being restored he's commanded in his turn to feed the Christians who will follow him I'm feeding you you're restored, so you go out and feed others. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. All right, I'm feeding you, you feed them. I feed you, you feed them. I forgive you, you forgive them. So the resurrected Christ forgives and feeds. Our responsibility is to be forgiven and to be fed and then to forgive and to feed. You come here, you confess your sins at the beginning of the service, you kneel and you confess your sins, and you are forgiven. And you are fed you're fed from the word proclaimed you're fed from the scriptures read you're fed by the bread You're fed by the wine you are forgiven and you are fed and you go out You're commissioned at the end of the service when the benediction is given you are going you're being sent out to forgive And to feed right you are forgiven and you are fed and you're sent out to forgive others and to feed them And this helps us to to be nourished and to worship both feeding feeding is something that newborn infants can understand and toddlers most certainly do nutrition is so complex that only god understands it only god understands everything that's going on now we we train nutrition we have some you can major in nutrition you can study it and you can know more about it than other people uh, than the average person does and a person who's, who's trained in nutrition understands Understands pretty much what's happening when you eat a sandwich, but only God understands what really happens when you eat a sandwich How is it possible for this to bless me the way it does but a new but a newborn infant is born hungry? they understand the concept just right away. No one you don't have to give your baby hungry lessons so it's the same thing with texts like these. You see the amazing intricacies. It goes down and down and down. Uh, 17 and 153 and centuries before Ezekiel prophesied and Jesus called it from 100 yards away. And you see all these things woven together. It's glorious. At the same time, there's something very simple here. There's something very straightforward and very simple. So here's the, here's the appeal. All of us have sinned. Everyone here has sinned. Everyone here is a screw up. This, this church, any church, every church is not a rest home for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And we, we come here because we need to be bandaged up. We come here because we need to be put right. Uh, the bones sticking out and God's got to put it back. And then God's got to, God, God deals with us here. The, so this is not a place where we come and congratulate one another on being such swell people. Um, We we come here in order to honor God as God and recognize ourselves as sinners, and that not just as a technicality, Not technically, I know doctrinally I must be a sinner, but the way Peter does, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. So all of us have denied the Lord in some fashion or other. All of us have warmed ourselves around the wrong coal fire. All of us have warmed ourselves around the wrong one. We've been around, we've gravitated to the wrong place. We've done things wrong. And all of us stand in need of being forgiven and restored around a different coal fire. But if you want to be restored, you've got to go over to the other one. You've got to go over where Jesus is. Jesus was at the first one, but that was because he was bound. He's at the second one, having risen from the dead. So one fires in the house of the enemies of God and if you warm yourself there You are in the house of the enemies of God. The other is on an open beach The resurrected Lord stands by it inviting you to come The resurrected Lord stands by that coal fire and his invitation is extended to you How do I know this? Well, Jesus tells us at the end of Mark that his ministers, the ones preaching his gospel, are commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. And what I'm saying is come to Christ, the one crucified, buried, risen for you. Come, come to Jesus. That invitation is the gospel. And Jesus says to proclaim that gospel, extend that invitation to every creature. So the resurrected Lord stands by the second coal fire, inviting you to come to it. Have you sinned like Peter? Have you wept bitterly like Peter? Have you looked at the cross and there calculated the weight of your sin? The Lord was crucified, and by that means he was murdered. And this is what enables us to see the true magnitude of our sins and our sinfulness. You, we, don't, we don't evaluate how sinful we are by looking in our own heart, by examining our own gunk. You, can, you only can take the measure of what your sin is like by looking at the price that Jesus paid for it. You don't, you don't really have an accurate view of your own sin by introspecting. When you introspect, that's not giving you an accurate view of your sin. If you want an accurate view, view of your sin, you have to look at Christ on the cross. Look at the cross as the hymn puts it, and by that means calculate the weight of your sin. Ye who think of sin but lightly nor suppose the evil great Here may view its nature rightly here. It's guilt may estimate So have you sinned grievously? Have you wept over that sin? bitterly then come You qualify You qualify Uh, I don't know if I can be a christian. Well, are you are are you a mess? Are you a hot mess? (laughs) Yeah, that's me how about your how about your brain? How about your heart? Is it dirty, filthy? Yeah, it's really bad. Well, you, good news. You're in. Come, you qualify. You meet the qualifications. You have to be a total mess. You have to be a wreck. You have to be a sinner. Do you see, um, many years ago, my my mom, now with the Lord, was a missionary in Japan, and she was sharing the gospel with the son of a Buddhist priest. And she got to the part. In order to become a Christian, you have to acknowledge that you're a, sin, a sinner. You have to acknowledge your sin. And this son of a Buddhist priest said, "Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person." And so my mom said, "Well, I'm sorry. You're out of luck. We uh, we have nothing for you. Christianity's only for sinners." And he went away. And he came back the next day. And said, "Okay, all right. right. <laughs> okay, all right, but." sin is sin is the thing that we contribute it's the only thing we contribute and in order in order for us to contribute it we have to acknowledge that that's what we have that's what we are right uh, as uh, top lady says in the hymn rock of ages nothing in my hands i bring simply to that cross i cling i don't bring anything of value to god all I bring is that which has to, uh, you know, he raises the dead. God raises the dead. What I supply is the carcass, right? That's all, that's all I have to supply. So have you sinned grievously? Then come, then come. Now we like to say, well, uh, we, we bluster like Peter. Peter said, Jesus said, the shepherd will be struck. The sheep will be scattered. Peter said, not, I, I won't. And all the other disciples followed him. And we think, and we, and we have that heart tendency ourselves. We like, well, if I had been there, if I'd been there in the gospel of John, if I'd been there during Passion Week, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done what Peter did. I, I would have done what John did. I, John was faithful all the way through. John stood straight. John didn't bend. John didn't, John was faithful. I would have done what John did, not what Peter did. You know, do you see what you're doing? You're doing what Peter did. that's Peter John didn't talk that way Peter talked that way and that's why I fell right we we need to to we're our tendencies to be full of ourselves we need to lay it all down we have to say yes I'm a sinner yes I, I have nothing to commend myself have you sinned grievously you qualify then come have you sinned grievously are you are you the worst person here at least according to your lights you think that no one here has done as bad as you, then you qualify, you come, you, you must not, you must not let your sin be a barrier between you and Christ because Christ is the one who overcomes precisely that, all right? So the risen Lord is standing on the beach, he's risen, He is risen indeed, the risen Lord is standing on the beach and he invites you to share breakfast with him. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I I pray that as we meditate on these things, as we contemplate them, as we think about them, you would help us to understand them more fully. Father, I pray that your spirit would be working on every heart here. I pray that those who know you would be strengthened in their knowledge of you. And I pray that those who don't know you would be brought into a saving and true liberating faith. Father, I pray you'd give this gift regardless of what we want. Father, I pray that you'd enable us, quicken us so that we want it. amen Amen. on the
1: first Easter there was quite a bit of running The, the women who first came to the tomb ran away after the angel told them Jesus was risen Mary Magdalene ran to tell Simon Peter and John that the stone was rolled away then John and Simon Peter had a foot race back to the tomb When the two disciples met Jesus on the road to Emmaus after their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread and they recognized him and he vanished, they hurried back that very hour to Jerusalem to tell all the other disciples. And then sometime later, when Simon Peter realized it was Jesus on the shore, he plunged into the sea to go meet Jesus. The application is two simple things this Easter Sunday. First, run to Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, hurry to him. Perhaps you've been busy with life, with sin weighing you down, trying to avoid that gnawing sensation that there's some distance between you and the Lord, putting off something you know you need to make right. Stop putting it off. Run to him. And the good news is that he is waiting for you. And when you stop trying to avoid him and turn to him, he's right there. In fact, in the parable of the prodigal son, The father is looking down the road for his son, and when he sees him, the father runs for him. Easter is for running home to your father. Easter is for running home to Jesus. Second, run to put things right. Have you said something to someone that you know you shouldn't have? Have you stolen and tried to justify it? Have you lied and tried to forget about it? No one in the world may know about it, but Jesus knows all about it. Jesus knows what you did, what you said. So as you run to him, run to put things right quickly. Confess your sins of bitterness, hatred, lying, stealing. Run and make it right. Plunge into the sea. It might be a little cold, but it's completely worth it. The Lord is waiting for you, and there's a warm fire and plenty of food. Remember, it's always better with Jesus. It's always better with Jesus. He has peace and joy and pleasures forevermore. Nothing compares to him. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that when we were far off, you came running for us. Thank you that despite our sin, despite our rebellion and our, even our hatred of you, our animosity toward you. You loved us. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus who died and rose again and lives forever. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen.
0: Amen.
1: He is risen. He is risen indeed. The charge is to go out and live like that's true. Love your husband, love your wife, love your children, love your neighbors, confess your sins, forgive sins, love your enemies, work hard, do it all, as if he really did rise from the dead, because he did. And now receive with believing hearts the blessing of your risen Lord and King, the peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain in your hearts always, and amen. amen.